quick warning before we start. This and all other episodes in this series contain adult subject matter, including strong language and descriptions of violent and nonviolent crimes. It may not be suitable for all audiences. Discretion is advised. I think Quartzsite came before what's happening in Washington. It's the same type of thing, except it bubbled to the surface early. People that maybe weren't very balanced finding a voice, and the cost was substantial. Has to do with the nature of here and the compulsion to air one's dirty laundry in public. That was Alex Taft. She was the town manager during some of Quartzite's more conflicted years. In several interviews throughout the process of shooting this film, several people have echoed her sentiment. And there are a lot of caring people there. There's a lot of volunteers. But boy, if they don't like you, they'll rip you to shreds. You know, they'll, they'll snub you. They'll, they'll put you out of business. They'll do whatever they can to get rid of you. That was Jenny Mills, former mayoral candidate and RV park owner in town. But I've heard that even by my very first interview, Rain Golden Bear. You know, it's like, this friggin' Twilight Zone. Then with Mike Roth. People were bullied. And several others. In fact, just looking through my list of interviewees, the first six people told me almost the same thing. In different words, of course. By virtue of what I've read, seen, and researched, that statement is very true. But I thought that being an outsider, I might actually hold some hope of escaping that dynamic. Or perhaps I might be seen as someone that both sides could trust. But as I found out within literally the first 24 hours of media mentions online, I received not one, not two, but three direct or indirect threats of lawsuits coming from the people I've interviewed or with whom I've requested interviews. And that was just the threats. I've also heard other rumblings on news comment boards, gossip from people in town hall about how I'm a shark and that I've tricked them into inadvertently feeding that shark. I've been banned from Quartzsite Facebook groups and had my comments censored. And again, this was all within the first day of a news article being released about my upcoming film. It's for that reason that this episode is called The First 24 Hours. A quick correction from the last episode that comes verbatim from one of those threats. Rain Goldenbear, instead of sending me a polite correction request that's normally reserved for fellow journalists, if not the expected common courtesy of a general audience of any particular media, accused me of spreading, quote, false information by saying that Steve Bennett was the mayor in last episode's audio clip of Mike Roth being booted from the town council meeting. That was actually Wes Huntley. Rain told me this, by the way, after ordering me to cease and desist defaming her and her partner, Star Bearcat, when she heard my interviewee, Julie LeBenz, misspeak about Star's role in the newspaper. She said Julie was, quote, incorrect and very unethical, stating that Star operated the Desert Messenger, end quote. She then proceeded to accuse me of, quote, promoting this false and very damaging narrative, end quote. Really? I promoted it? How did I do that, I wonder? And how is it damaging to not remember correctly who owns a paper from working with them more than a decade ago? And also, why can working for or not working for any company be seen as damaging? Unless, of course, that business is a legitimately bad entity, and therefore anyone who works with that company, even by association, must also be bad. A little background here. Julie employed Star as a process server when she was still practicing law in La Paz County. So she knew that Star was at least a photographer for the newspaper. And she later told me that she really didn't interact with Rain, so it's an easy mistake to make. 
But Rain apparently assumes that people are plying through her publication to make sure that she is the sole proprietor. Honestly, nobody cares. When I was working as a photographer for a handful of newspapers in southern Indiana while finishing my journalism degree, I couldn't have cared less if I was mistaken for a writer or a reporter or even a managing editor. I mean, if the paper got sued, they sure as hell weren't going to call on me to be involved in it. So what's the real beef? Rain went from being super pleasant and even touchy-feely every time she saw me at council meetings to a complete reversal, being a nasty and accusatory and even threatening person who would rather chase me through court than simply send me a correction request. I kind of wish this was a video podcast so I could lay over the screenshot of this email. I mean, it was intensely mean-spirited. The subject itself says, you have a big problem. That's a quote. The word big is in all caps and there are three exclamation marks at the end to accentuate her point. Then, all throughout the email, there were bolded and capitalized words. She accentuated her claims with words like egregious and damaging. And she even said that because Julie was mistaken on a completely unrelated statement, that I was guilty of, quote, interfering with Starr's election, end quote. I called the other newspaper publisher in town to get her take on that. As far as her suing, that's, that's absurd. She hasn't got two nickels to rub together. So I wouldn't worry too much about, you know, she might have... I, be able to say, oh, I have an attorney because she did have to hire an attorney to defend herself against my, my lawsuit. But as far as her being some sort of, you know, powerful person of financial means who keeps an attorney on retainer to handle these sorts of things, that's a big crock of shit. And one ironic note about this period of time before I move into the podcast itself, it's actually because of the quickly changing scenario of feedback and criticism that has not only confirmed a lot of what witnesses are telling me about the town's past, but also changed the course of the podcast itself, and perhaps even the film. I had originally planned to publish updates from this week's interview with current chief of the Quartzite Police Department, Will Ponce, but I was so sidetracked with threats and assaultive emails that I've decided to move that episode to next week and take on these issues sooner rather than later. But don't let this take away from the show as a whole. My interview with Chief Ponce was as fascinating as it was revealing. I might even venture to say that it's among the best interviews I've had for this film to date. Now, these threats. They would come in from the very people that I was warned about. By locals, by close friends of these people, even by the police. Be careful with rain, you know. What's the story there? Uh, just to be careful. That was retired police officer Steve Frakes on Shanana Rain Golden Bear. Everyone calls her Rain, or at least everyone who's not seen Rain's background check. Here's the two other newspaper reporters, Bob Miller and Jennifer Jones, on the types of people that make it in Quartzsite. I'm telling you, it was nonstop. Everyone that came to Quartzsite had a mission, and most of it was bogus. When you started digging into it, it was bogus. More often than not, we'd run a check on somebody and find out that everything they told us was untrue. Well, you know, first of all, it's not Rain, it's Anna English, because uh, that's her actual name. You know, Shanana, Rain, Golden, Bear, whatever she wants to go by. She didn't change it legally, but it's not like she's actually some Native American. Bob Miller was the publisher of The Gem, which stretched all the way back to when Richard Oldham was still a figurehead, and Jade Jones was the publisher of The Desert Freedom Press. She started that paper to rival Rain's paper. She actually sued Rain for a quibble they had over those newspapers and is probably the preeminent person that first warned me about Rain. Today's podcast is actually going to be mostly from the discussion between Jennifer Jones and myself, but a highlight of that conversation starts when I began talking about how Rain sold herself as a very positive person. First off, 
This is how Rain told me she was taking the direction of the newspaper. The public needs something else to focus on besides the drama and in the political world. Why don't we do something positive? Here's a snippet of my conversation with Jones on the issue of Rain's positivity. When I first met her, and, and basically every time up until I got this very kind of nasty letter, she really kind of sold herself as a positive person. I mean, is that... Well, you know, that's her gig. I mean, that's what she does. She, she, she's such a phony. She tries to report to the community that she's all about, you know, love and tolerance and community and kindness and everyone hold hands and sing kumbaya and it's all going to be rainbows and unicorns. But it's a complete false front. She's never been that person. She's not that person. She is one of the most hateful, spiteful, vindictive people I've ever met. From Rain's very first interview with me, she told me that she ran the paper with the explicit intention of broadcasting the positivity in Quartzite. Anytime you have some negative news, you're going to have folks that are drawn into it. So now that's going to be repeated. And you know, like the old telephone game, sometimes it doesn't get repeated quite right. Personally, I don't really think there's anything wrong with that until you consider what people are actually saying about the positivity. Even back then, I wondered what she meant by the various claims she made about the negative news being somehow not quite right, but the positive news she printed was always correct and responsible. There's a theory rolling around about why Rain was chosen to run the newspaper, rather than, say, someone with a history of experience writing or reporting in local news. You know, the newspaper was basically gifted to her. Um, She has no journalistic background. Rain again. The publisher that gifted the Desert Messenger to me was Walt Aiken. He was the founder. Um, It was four years old. Here's Chief Ponce on his theory. Do you think that Rain was chosen to run the Desert Messenger for any particular reason? I don't know what the reason was, but I do believe that she was chosen, uh, she was handpicked to run that paper for a specific reason. Now, I don't know what that reason is, but she was very involved in all the situations that occurred under Jeff Gilbert. Um, had details that nobody else had because I saw them being published and information that was not public information was being presented by her. So she had to have gotten them from somewhere because I know those, I know that information. I was aware of many of those things. So it perhaps wasn't an accident that she got the paper. I don't believe that anything was an accident. I believe that was all planned out. All of the hatred and dissent and lies and misinformation and propaganda that circulated about Quartzite and within Quartzite was almost 100% because of her using her quote-unquote community paper to spread the lies, the misinformation, and the hatred, to foment the hatred in the community. Literally, none of the Quartzite Cabal players could do what they did if they hadn't had her as their de facto official mouthpiece. This leads up to why I decided to, yet again, delay Ponza's podcast. The speculation that these interviews are making about Rain's connection to the council are not grounded in opinion, but fact. As Bob Miller pointed out, I've heard that there's a lot of nonprofits that get started up there and don't really benefit anyone that they say they benefit. Have you heard anything about those? Oh, yes. Yes. I was asked to serve on the board for one of them. That was Mr. Oldham's thing for the health clinic there. <laughs> they had a, they'd raised some nonprofit money for it. The health clinic there, which was a scam, 
asked me one time to serve on the board, and I went to two board meetings and said, no thanks, I'm locked out. Yeah, but they, yeah, they do these kind of things all over town. Yes, they do. And the Chamber of Commerce is another one. What he's referring to here is that Rain is not just the publisher of the Desert Messenger. She's also the president of the Chamber of Commerce. And Rain's partner, Star Bearcat, is not just an intimate partner who did, in fact, work for the paper. She's also currently serving on the town council. The fact that she's running for council in the latest election to remain on that council is the connection that Bob Miller is making that connects Rain directly to the town's politics. Uh, the Chamber of Commerce has absolutely no business with a tax-exempt status because they're involved in political activities up to their eyeballs, and that's a that's an IRS no-no. Right. If, if you're a nonprofit, you can't you cannot foster uh, uh, candidates or issues one way or another. You have to be neutral. And I've been threatening to file a complaint with the IRS. As Rain told me, Walt Aiken gave her the paper and then took the position of mayor. In April of 2008, I accepted the offer from the publisher of the Desert Messenger um, to take over publishing. He actually gave it to me. And after the mayor Busby died, then the council elected him as mayor, appointed him as mayor. Now, call me crazy here, but being, quote, gifted a newspaper by someone who then turns around and runs the town might be seen as a move to groom one's public image. I don't think you'll live long enough to get all the layers of corruption that was going on there. But I wasn't there during that time, and I'm sure I've never even read a single one of the editions all the way through. So I'll leave that question to be answered by those who know. Whatever the case, I asked Jade why she thinks Rain might have threatened to file suit against me upon finding out that I was planning to release a film that she might not be particularly fond of. Her only background was, I think, working in, like, the ad department of a newspaper in Oregon or someplace. When I sued her for publishing false and defamatory information about me, she had to hire an attorney, and she literally had to to put together one of those online fundraising things to raise the money to pay the attorney. She was literally selling T-shirts in order to pay the attorney to answer my claim. And that's true. Rain actually told me about that in February of 2019. I designed a t-shirt to promote Quartzite, and it had the state of Arizona, it had a big camel on it, and it had the Quartzite, the rock capital of the world, and so I sold those as a fundraiser to help with my legal expenses. Rain goes on to tell me that Jade's entire job was to destroy Rain and her newspaper, and this is important because from one side, and I'll start with Jade here, She says that the fake news started with the political mouthpiece of the town. And from the other side, Rain claims that she's just this positive person who stumbled onto a business that might allow her to focus on what she considered to be the positive news, instead of focusing on news that might not be all that positive. When the dog lady, uh, Jade, sued the town in federal court for harassment and violating her Fourth Amendment rights and so forth, they were borrowing from one fund to another to pay legal fees because she was representing herself with a little help from a few folks. And she got the way the thing all the way into federal court and she cost them a lot of money. And there was a lot of shuffling going on to keep the wolves away from the town's door. I mean, tell you, she made life pretty miserable for them, you know? She's a bright girl. She's no dummy. Uh, 
her biggest problem was she wouldn't she couldn't do things in a timely fashion she's you know when you're in federal court and you're filing documents they have to be filed precisely as uh, on time or you're penalized for it and that's where she kind of got in trouble but that was one of the biggest travesties i've ever seen that's not how rain sees it however She really wanted to see if she could break me. She publicly said it over and over again that she was gonna, she was gonna put me out of business. She represented herself, so she didn't have to put out a lot of money, but I did. So I became a very large and popular target. Jennifer Jones started her newspaper and she announced it at a town council meeting. She announced that she was going to kind of take me out of business and she's going to start her own paper and and she's going to write the truth in it. One could see where the issue lies. Oh, and there's one more thing I almost forgot to mention about Walt Aiken, or rather what Bob Miller has to say about Walt Aiken. Just an example. I had another guy by the name of Walt Aiken who came to town. He was a master plumber. Oh, you bet he was. And so I did a background on him. He wound up on the town council, by the way. And so I did a background on Mr. Aiken after things started looking a little fishy. And I found out that he came from Reno, and he was—he uh, had exited town in the wake of a uh, wrongful death action that had been filed against him and uh, a bankruptcy. When I watched the old town council videos and spoke with the players involved, I just saw this as something that went on in the past. It seemed at that time to be a feature of the town's history that no longer exists, and perhaps that's because everyone spoke about it in the past tense. But for me, I just assumed that it was dead and gone since, when I looked around, there was no police hiding in the bushes, no mayors shuffling off with bags of cash, and people like Rain were telling me, Certain individuals in our, co- in, in our community have learned how to take something that was once negative and flip it around into something positive. We have a new chamber of commerce. We have a courtside Opoly game that was birthed in all of this. We had the grand gathering that were, we broke, you know, we were in the Guinness Book of World Records right at the peak of all this insanity. We had the Arizona Centennial celebrations. We we focused in on all of our volunteers because this community is phenomenal for its volunteers. When Quartzite was on the national news, we were a little concerned about how it was going to affect our economy because it's easy to believe what's out there. And that national news did not give the other side because, like you said, you got to have a gotcha. And the gotcha was, oh, Quartzite's under martial law. This little town in Quartzite and police corruption. You Google Quartzite police corruption and boy, howdy, do you get all kinds of neat stuff. Even Google likes the negative, you know? And once it's out there, it's out there. But when we saw negative posts about Quartzite, we would try to bury it in the thread. So if somebody were Googling Quartzite, we would post all this positive stuff. There were three of us that were doing this on a constant basis of going, oh yeah, you may see that negative, but let me tell you about our volunteers. Let me tell you about this event that's going on. Let me tell you about this one. And so for every one, we had at least three positives. Here's Chief Ponce again. 
Uh, the, the, the newspapers in the town of Quartzsite have always been very controversial and actually tried to control and manipulate the way things are portrayed in the community. And they have always had a, for lack of a better term, a dog in the fight and trying to get sway the, the perception of people and direct people's thought process on how things are and should be viewed almost like a political entity. And did they sway the view? Oh, they did very, they did greatly. So when multiple threats came in from people aligned in one way or another with the town council, most within 24 hours of the very first news story that broke about the film, then I started thinking back to comments other folks were making. People who are not aligned with the council, like the current chief of police, Mike Roth, Ed Foster. Police went along with it until they got scared, and then they finally turned on the chief. But it took five years to get to that point. It affects people to this day. They are afraid of doing anything because the reputation law enforcement has here. Uh, there are people that get uh, have problems, like uh, vendors are here and people are stealing from them. They don't call the police. They don't want to get them involved. I've heard these stories dozens of times. Mike and others warned me that these folks were like this, and then I started wondering why, with such immediacy, would they be threatening me? Why would Mark Goldberg, who's the husband of a council member, send me a note rescinding his unretractable agreement to the release he signed for the film? Why would Alex Taft, who's the ex-town manager, send me an email questioning the trailer? Why would ex-chief Jeff Gilbert, who's undoubtedly the most controversial character in the story, 10 months after asking him for an interview to get his side of this, contact me and say that he, quote, hopes I understand his position on this, end quote. Someone called me the other day, yesterday, I guess it was, and told me that uh, about your podcast. And I took a look at them real quick and uh, yeah, a little, a little upset over uh, one main thing in there. And there's no basis to any kind of allegation of that sort anywhere along the line. That kind of statement for anybody that reads it is going to be extremely damaging to me personally, to my reputation professionally. And I didn't want new stuff popping up everywhere. Every, every time somebody does a background on me or look, pull, pulls my name up in the computer. Uh, you know, I, like you said, you know, <clears throat> I, I hope you understand my position in this. Uh, you know, I can, you know, there's, there's nobody out of that whole group that's been damaged like I have. Now, because of the way that Gilbert stopped himself right in the middle of his sentence, I wasn't sure if it was a physical threat, like the time that he allegedly pointed his gun at the town's mechanic, or a civil threat, like Rain's overstated mention of having already acquired a lawyer. But the people attached to the story can't possibly think I have any obligation whatsoever to refrain from publishing allegations that are newsworthy to that level, scope, or extent, especially after I've asked several of these characters to speak about the issues and they refused. Not only that, but some, including Gilbert himself, just never materialized for an interview. And just in case you're wondering at this point, for a journalist, the first thing that draws question into a person's character is that person's refusal to speak about controversial issues. The second biggest flag for a journalist is when someone tries very overtly to stop publication of certain issues. While I was on the phone with Jeff, this part of Bob Miller's interview popped into my mind. They had a police chief. This guy had an immediate dislike for me because I found out that he had a story when he came to town. He hadn't even been certified as a police officer. And he pulled me over one day when I was going into McDonald's and started to give me
bunch of horsemen to her about nothing. And I just set him straight right then and there. I said, uh, well, let me tell you something. You're not even certified, and I happen to know that. So you have no business pulling anybody over at this point. And you can imagine how that set with him. And he was there for quite a while, and he'd follow me around and flip me the bird as he went by, you know. And he'd do all this crazy. The guy was half nutty. And one day, he uh, takes his patrol car. He had an unmarked patrol car. And he goes over to the city shop. Who, uh, the city shop does all the maintenance on all the vehicles, police cars, everything. And he takes this police car in to have it worked on. And while he's in there, he gets into the uh, discussion. It started out, he and the, one of the mechanics were horsing around. And the mechanic is a guy by the name of Jose Marquez, who I also knew pretty well. And during the course of this uh, this conversation, Marquez apparently called, called uh, Gil, uh, the police officer, uh, uh, Oaxaco. <laughs> or the police officer called him a Oaxaco. That's what happened. And Marquez says, well, you can't do that. I'll whip your ass. And the police chief reached down and the cons- console of his car pulled up a loaded Glock and named it at him and said, not until you get past this. Now, they had a loft over the shop. All of this was observed by another city employee who was up in the loft overseeing it. And this guy gave us a complete sworn affidavit on what happened, okay? And I took the thing to Busby and I said, look, you know, this is <laughs> this is something you guys need to take a look at. Jim Lloyd and I got together, and we decided that something ought to be done about this before this guy really hurt somebody. So Marquez decided that we put Marquez in touch with a guy by the name of Harvey Jackson, and uh, Harvey's a lawyer over in Lake Havasu, and a pretty damn good one. I used him for, I ran a RV park there on the side for a while, and I used him for eviction, so I knew Harvey. And we got Harvey to represent Marquez, and he took him to the he took him to the mat on this uh, threatening him with a firearm, and it was settled out of court for I think it was a hundred fifty thousand uh, thereabouts, and uh, that's just one example of the of the, the atrocities this police department engaged in. They would follow me around and pull me over for DUI. They tried to catch me with a DUI. I have never had a DUI in my life because I don't drink and drive. I seldom ever drink anyway. And anyway, they kept pulling this. And so one day I cornered the police chief in his office and I told him, you know, let us sit down here, son. You and me are going to have a talk. And I told him, I said, you know, you're about the fifth police chief that's come to town. And you all come here with a big story of where you've been and all the wonderful things you've done. And generally, we kind of live and let live as long as you don't hassle anybody. But it's come to my attention through some of the officers that have shared with me your desire to have me arrested for DUI if they can possibly do it. And I'm here to tell you, you're not the first one that's been up to that. Or you'll probably be the last. But I'm, I'm going to tell you that if you keep it up, you're going to find yourself knee-deep in a lawsuit. So let's just have a gentleman's agreement between the two of us. And the agreement is that you have a date for the dance. That's the good news.
news. The bad news is I'm your chaperone. And he didn't like that very much either. (laughs) Now, this was hardly the least of the early days of the QPD's improprieties. Miller went on to tell me about a botched raid that likely gave innocent people a heart attack and guilty people a heads up. I could write a whole book on things the police department did. They they raided a house one night with an old guy who was near his deathbed. They threw a smoke bomb in and one of these flashbang things and went in and got him out at 2 o'clock in the morning. Come to find out they had the wrong house. It was a house next door they should have should have been after. <laughs> this kind of thing went on all the time with that police department. And I've written several articles, I can't even tell you how many, about the fact that not only should the town have never been incorporated, but the police department should have never happened either. It should have contracted that out to La Paz County, who was more than willing to do it and do it professionally. But oh no, they wanted control. They used the police department as a hammer for anyone that dared to question them. Believe it or not, this is absolutely not the craziest thing that witnesses have alleged against Gilbert over the course of my interviews. And some of the craziest actually come directly from his very own officers. In another episode, I'll cover a number of DPS investigations into Gilbert's relationship to incidents like destruction of evidence and records forging, targeted campaigns of political harassment, and even child sex scandals. Now, Mark Goldberg definitely spoke with me, but he refused to speak about several of the more racy issues. Rain Goldenbear spoke to me about a year ago, but then refused to speak about negative issues in our latest interview in February of 2020. Linda Goldberg, the wife of Mark Goldberg, flat out told me when I met her at a veteran celebration that she knew what kind of film I was making, and that I should just stop making it because, quote, nobody cares. And then we have Mr. Gilbert, who, after 10 months of open requests to speak, offers me a very slyly polished message about his position on the matter being released in my film. On the other hand, and in great contrast to this line of people, Mike Roth gave me near-complete access to his home and his permaculture projects and his sheriff campaign. Jennifer Jones has spoken with me at least a half a dozen times, describing her experience as being targeted by Gilbert and other officers who are aligned with the council. Every time I get Ed Foster on the phone, he reminds me that I'm doing a very important documentary that will, in his eyes, reveal a great lesson for the rest of the country. Paul Weiner says the same thing. Great interview, that's why I got back to you. I feel what you're doing is absolutely purposeful, necessary, and will give the town quite a quite a bit of pride. Well, not everybody is, is super anxious to talk to me about it. So I know. I'm hoping that and you'll get some comments that some people won't like. Yeah. Not too bad. <laughs> well, in the end, I think they'll see what you're doing is going to have been worthwhile. So. I have a list of text messages with Jeff Gilbert where he's responded to my interview requests, and then I don't hear from him for a few weeks until I reach out again. The last time I contacted him was in February of this year. After several unanswered calls from my phone, I called him from my producer's phone and got an answer. Unsurprisingly, he backed out of the interview right in the middle of that call. Uh, Available for uh, an interview this week, or maybe next week. Um, Can you tell me where and when and what time? I think you sent me a text, didn't you, earlier? Uh, What, I think yesterday or the day before, yeah, something like that. Yeah. So you're where you're at. You in courtside now? Or? Yeah, uh, I arrived 
Uh, I think I think I've been here about a week now. Um, I don't know if you're in, in Havasu or Parker, but I can be up there in probably a half an hour to an hour. I'm gonna have to get back. We I've been out of town the last couple of days and stuff, so we're we're just kind of getting settled back in here again um, today in Havasu. Um, let me um, let me take a look at my schedule on that and. Uh, let me get settled back in here, and then, uh, um, yeah, we'll figure something out. He did not call me back. My first request was on September 12, 2019, when I met him at Mike Roth's jury trial. For no explicable reason other than to see Mike hauled off to jail, Jeff Gilbert appeared on the last day of the court trial and spoke with me after the jury had returned a pretty damning 7-2 vote in Mike's favor. From that day until today, it's been 10 months and 4 days, and he even backed out of the interview request that I offered him this past weekend. In another interview with Paul Weiner, he also told me, Mark Goldberg had a lot to do with settling Town Hall. His expertise from the city of Hammett, California, has been invaluable to this town. Here's Paul talking about Norm Simpson. He's put our records back in order. He's managed to do things legally. He's helped people with the ability to make some change convince them they need to. And finally, here's Paul talking about the town's reaction to him as a person and as a character. I love this town because it allows me to be me and has grown a respect for me that even I'm surprised by. We had uh, corrupt officials you know, uh, the current crowd's a, a little better at hiding it. <laughs> the, those guys weren't. They were terrible, and they were thugs. He was referring to police corruption and malfeasance, but also to the activities of the current council. And up until these recent threats came in, I was of the opinion that Mike, kind of being the overzealous activist that he's known to be, was just blowing things out of proportion. My initial impression was that the people chairing the council right now were actually on the up and up. But if Mike is telling me the truth... What else have I heard that was possibly also true? Had I been led astray in my interviews with these people? Was the reason that people like Mark Goldberg and Jeff Gilbert refused to answer certain questions actually about hoping I wouldn't see what was really going on? Is the current council, like Mike says, just as dirty as the past councils? When I spoke with Loretta Warren, she struck me as candid, welcoming even. She's a very kind and intelligent lady. I like her. I also like Norm Simpson, the current mayor. After all, These players contribute huge parts of themselves to this town. Linda is constantly looking for new tourism outlets. Rain started the Proud Neighbors of Quartzsite and does a huge rock painting ceremony for the Quartzsite Improvement Association. Mark is not only the president of the Sunriders 4x4 Club, he also writes articles in neighboring newspapers to help promote it. And people love it. Here's Paul Weiner on the future of that subject alone. The swap meets caught on. And the fact that you stay here for the winter caught on. The fact that we have 11,000 square acres of long-term designated BLM camping uniques this town. Uh, and it's becoming a four-wheel off, off-road uh, center. It's going to have a 200-mile trail. Campgrounds along it, access to every town, you know, in the western long half of Arizona. That's its future. The point is that I don't doubt in any way that these guys truly have their hearts in the town. But the issues that this film attacks are so much bigger than Quartzite. They're so much bigger than even the state of Arizona. 
They speak directly to a nation rocked by corruption at the highest levels. And what I found here might actually help the lives of millions of people around the country. But after threats came in from those associated with the other members of Town Hall, which I'm more convinced are attempts to stop publication on issues they assume might paint the town in a bad light, I'm not too keen to trust my instincts anymore. In fact, I'm beginning to look back with much greater scrutiny at claims about the current town manager, claims being made about Norm's land dealings throughout his time as mayor, and disconcerting claims about Starr and Rain's early years in Quartzsite. And before these threats came in, these issues were not even remotely related to the core tenets of the story as I had planned to tell it. But it appears that they may have some place in the film after all. Here's a snippet of an interview with an early internet radio personality in Quartzsite's conflict named Richard Abbey. You know, um, she and her partner, you know, I, like I told you, I used to be, you know, part of this uh, hippie thing going on there. And there were a lot of, you know, your deadhead hippie types that, that lived there in the winter. And uh, so the thing is, I, I knew her before she ever got the newspaper, uh, which was given to her, you know, and in my opinion, she probably, you know, was just sort of opportunistic on that but the thing is like she and and star had a reputation amongst the hippies you didn't let them near your table because they were grifters too you know they had they had a a routine that they would do and and the 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 hippies would all laugh about it and be like you got to watch her man so because you know they're like keep your eye on on her partner star because uh what happens is, you know, they walk up to your table and she was like, you know, the, the, the more feminine, prettier one in the, in that couple. And so she would come up and she would talk to you and start flirting with you and whatnot. And meanwhile, star would be ripping shit off. She'd be stealing off your table. Right. (laughs) You know? And so she had a, yeah, they were, they were grifters. When I started this film back in February 2019, I was certain that this was a huge success story, that this tiny town of 3,500 residents had done in just 30 years what the entire country, with all of its political experts and think tank pundits, hasn't been able to do in more than 200 years. I thought that they'd cracked the code to civility. I thought that they'd defined the reasons that following the order of law was important. I thought that they value transparency, and as a result, the town was on its way back to economic success. Was I wrong? Did they fool me? Have I been used as a springboard to send out only the positive notions in the town? Or are my initial views correct and Quartzsite has a lesson the entire nation can learn from? I hope I was right, I really do. Because right now, America not only needs to hear the message that we really can get past the era of dirty politics and pride fighting, this country also needs an example of a town that's lived through it, fought the good fight, and are winning because they're following the rules, not as a side note to it. And as time goes on, I'm sure I'll add more insights to this, but for now, I'm very cautious about the players in this particular drama. This week, I'm releasing two podcasts. This is the first of those, but the second is actually the rest of the conversation that I had with Jennifer Jones. It's as interesting as it is entertaining. She is every bit the quirky personality that is attracted to Quartzsite. And that conversation is very pointed about where she sees herself and the other players in the town today. Listen to that one next, and then I'll follow that up next week with a very meaningful conversation I had with Chief Ponce. This guy is as cool as they come, 
but he's also an incredibly dedicated steward of the justice system. He's served his country, he underwent his undergraduate studies specifically to become a cop, then after a dozen years as a cop, he put his badge on the line to fight for and alongside the citizens of Quartzsite against injustice, and he was still fired for his efforts. But that didn't stop him. He moved over to the Colorado River Indian Reservation to work on their police department until he could finally get his chance to come back and work for the town. And now that he's chief, he says, I think education goes a long way and communication goes even further than that. Because if we can have a conversation like we're having right now, because we're both human beings and we see things from different sides, I can learn something from you and you can learn something from me. But we have to have that open mind to make those things happen. If we don't, then we, that's when we run into problems like we have today in society. We don't want to hear what other people have to say. We don't want to understand other people. We don't want to listen. I think we should always listen first before we speak. He asked Jeff Gilbert a question during our interview. It went like this. Why did you do what you did to us and to the department? You destroyed us and destroyed our identities and who we were and the integrity of the police department. We'll talk about that and a whole lot more about this man and what he sees for the future of Quartzite in episode five. Until then, be sure to subscribe to the Patreon account, patreon.com slash legallyinsanefilms, or donate to support the film at legallyinsanefilms.com. We still need your help to fund this film and to support the release of the rest of the episodes in this podcast. So please, please, please donate. Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Trouble in Little Quartzite. I'm your host, Kyle O'Donnell. We'll see you next time. This has been a production of Legally Insane Films, LLC. Thank you.